Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
the cows context of white supremacy. Uh, I'm still playing Michael Jackson songs because uh, I was a fan. He was a victim of white supremacy more than anything. So I'm going to play Michael Jackson songs to open the show uh, until I don't want to anymore. Uh, and I foresee me playing quite a few of them because uh, someone asked me just after he passed uh, if I was a fan. I said no. And then uh, as I started hearing more songs, I was like, oh, I guess he did have uh, two or ten songs that I liked. So I'm going to play as many of them as I feel like it uh, to open the show. Um, again, more than anything, a victim of white supremacy. And I strongly believe if Mr. Jackson had been more informed about racism, white supremacy, he would still be with us. Uh, at any rate, that's why we're here, to uh, get constructive information on racism, white supremacy. Uh, today's guest uh, provided constructive assistance to a victim of white supremacy, myself, already by making this show happen. She uh, was is responsible uh, for the call taking place. I still do not have a phone and I'm working within those limitations, but she was uh, more than willing to come through and make the show happen to uh, phone in for the both of us. Uh, so we're able to do this edition of The Cows. For that, I am grateful, and hopefully, <laughs> or I don't even hope. I already read one of her articles, so I'm quite certain that we will have lots of constructive uh, information in this broadcast. Um, she is a, I'm going to make sure I get it right, uh, diversity, is it a social justice and diversity consultant? You can be certain I will ask her to clarify what exactly that is. Uh, but a social justice and diversity consultant. Um, she has her own website, jessicapettit.com. Uh, it's uh, linked uh, in the show description. You can uh, click it. I think she already wrote it in the chat room as well, so you can do either or to hit her website up. Uh, she called in for the program with Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr. to share her views, and I think she also has been uh, in the chat room for a few of the recent episodes. I know she was here for Tim Wise. And I think Oh, she was here uh, last week as well for... Uh, Professor uh, Noel Ignatiev, uh, our guest, uh, Jessica Pettit. How are you doing uh, this afternoon? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for uh, being willing to come on the program. I appreciate it uh, anytime uh, we have a white person that's willing to speak uh, honestly about the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, if you could share with our listeners uh, anything you think would uh, be useful so that they get a better understanding of who you are and why you do this work. Sure. Um, I think for the premise of this show, it's probably best to start off that um, I identify as a white person. I benefit from all of the privileges associated with what I would use the term whiteness. Um, it's a social construction that white people created to justify them being any different than people who they would then determine are not white. And that them is part of my group membership. Um, so I am as much as part of the white supremacist system as I am actively attempting to dismantle the system of white supremacy. Um, and I like Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> I don't know what else you want to know. <laughs> what else you think is uh, is constructive? I know there's some uh, non-white folks out there who are familiar with Dr. Welsing's work and chocolate who might find that interesting and constructive. Um, you said that you are a white person, correct? Yes. Okie dokie. Um, and again, she uh, actually, uh, you said Jess. You prefer if I called you Jess, is that correct? Sure. 
Okie dokie. Um, Jess and I, uh, this is one of the few guests that I've actually uh, had a small amount of dialogue with prior to the program, which is rare. Most of the guests that I've had on the program, uh, we have really not talked much, uh, if at all, uh, before the program. Um, we talked uh, for maybe 10 minutes before the show, and that's, she's called in on other programs. So, uh, and She said she's listened to quite a few of the shows at this point, so I guess uh, we've heard each other uh, quite a bit more than most of the guests that I've had on my program. Um, so we're going to have, I guess, a little more conversation uh, on this show, which will be groovy. And the uh, folks listening in, you can uh, join in the discussion. The number is 347-215-6071. On the May 23rd uh, edition of The Cows with Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr., uh, you admitted to being a racist. I uh, just wanted to clarify, is that correct? And uh, does that mean that you have uh, directly and or indirectly participated in mistreating individuals because they are not white? Um, the concise answer is yes. That would be past tense, present tense, and probably future tense. Okay. Um, okay. Um, Um, I guess, number one, uh, the thing that I was saying last weekend, you were listening to the program with uh, Professor uh, Ignatiev. Mm -hmm. Um, I have found it very uh, important uh, in discussions on racism, white supremacy, um, to speak in a concise manner and speak in a manner so that, as I said last week, someone who does not have a high school diploma uh, can easily grasp what's being said. Uh, I want to make that same request with you and uh, also ask if you think that is uh, a reasonable request for a non-white person to make uh, in a discussion on racism, white supremacy. Oh, it, it depends how much. I, I mean, I have listened to a lot of your interviews, so I know that words and the semantics related to those words are really important. Hmm. Um, so I can say that I will do my best. Okay. Um, what, I'm, what I mean by doing my best is that uh, when I was actually in Seattle at the beginning of this year, um, I did six different presentations while I was in Seattle, and the one that was the most challenging to me, that where I learned the most and I was asked the toughest questions, was a presentation I did to seventh and eighth graders at Bush High School, or Bush School, mm-hmm. um, to the seventh and eighth graders. So not having a high school diploma by no means means that I wouldn't be challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, and listening to the people in your chat rooms and the people who call in after your interviews, um, I would conclude that they are some of the most well-read, well-educated people I've ever gotten to potentially have conversations with, which is why I was so excited to be on your show. Um, With those two premises known, um, I think it's completely reasonable for you to ask for anything you want to on your show because you know your audience. So I will do my best. Groovy. Outstanding. Outstanding. Um, And I guess I'll ask this before we get into uh, the meat of things. Um, I said last week, uh, it's my view, uh, any white person, uh, as long as the system of white supremacy exists, uh, if they say that they are about replacing white supremacy with justice, one of the ways that that should be consistently demonstrated is in the way that they have contact with non-white people. Uh, And I said last week, white people really should be like Mr. Rogers. I mean, they should be uh, the prototype for how you behave in a courteous, 
respectful and calm manner at all times uh, when interacting, having contact with a non-white person, especially in a discussion on racism, white supremacy. Um, do you think what I just said, do you think that that is true? Um, again, I think that that makes complete and total sense, and mm -hmm. I think that not only should white people be civil, I'm going to use the word civil instead of Mr. Rogers, I don't have that many cardigan sweaters. Okay. I think that <laughs> white people should be civil to non-whites when talking about anything, talking about race and whiteness and white supremacy and things like that, I think it's really important to be civil. I think it's also important to be civil to each other, mm -hmm. whether it's a white person talking to another white person or a non-white person talking to another non-white person or a cross race. Mm -hmm. um, with that, I think the word should in, or ought is really important. Um, I also think that human beings can be irrational and our emotions can get the best of us and we can get frustrated or embarrassed or nervous and um, as a white person who's been socialized and growing up within the culture of white supremacy, um, it's nervousy to not know all the answers or to feel like you're getting called out. Or um, I also think that as a woman, sometimes I feel that I need to make everyone happy and look confident. And so um, where, yes, I want to be civil, I also know that my humanness may come through where I say something I disagree with a minute later, I might contradict myself, but um, I, I definitely will do my best to be respectful and uh, behave the way that I should. Yes, and I would assume you would do the same thing. So. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, actually, I, at this point, this is show number 22. Uh, I think uh, my record speaks for itself. I think... Uh, you can say, or anyone, listeners out there, they can say that they disagree. Uh, I don't care. Uh, I have been a participant in all the programs. I don't think anyone who's been on my show has been more courteous than me, um, white or non-white. I don't think anyone has been more courteous than I have uh, on any of the programs thus far. Folks and I, I listened to the vast majority of the interviews, and I, I don't think that you flew off the handle at any point in time. At least not during an interview. <laughs> not doing an interview, yes. And as my voice can tell, I have at other times, but not on my show. Not yet, anyway. Uh, I don't anticipate it happening uh, today either. Um, I was curious. You are a white person, admitted racist, white supremacist. Um, can you share with our non-white folks so that uh, the non-white person who does not have that high school diploma so that he can understand what you have to do uh, in terms of function? What do you have to do as a white person in a system of white supremacy, directly, indirectly, consciously, unconsciously? What are things that you have to do just on a day-to-day -day basis to maintain that system of white supremacy? The, the bonus is nothing. Um, like one, you, you don't have to do anything. And by doing nothing, it supports the system of white supremacy. I mean, one of the interesting conversations is, why would white people want to dismantle this system if they're so privileged and benefiting from it? Um, it's, it's like an easy chair. I mean, anything you ever want to drink is right there. Anything you ever want to eat is right there. Anything you ever want to do, you have access to. Um, you, don't, you, do, you do nothing, and it, you're supporting the system. Um, part of the reason why I think it's so hard to do anti-racist work or work towards dismantling white supremacy is that literally doing anything to try to dismantle um, the system is more than doing nothing. 
but you don't necessarily get to see the results of it. You don't get to see progress. And so it's so much easier just to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to go back to doing nothing, and then you're back to supporting the system again. Um, I definitely um, feel that that is true. Um, that, and I feel that that is one of the uh, one of the ways that all white people uh, perpetuate the system of white supremacy by not doing anything uh, to work against uh, that system. Uh, however, um, it's been my or it is my conclusion that the system of white supremacy is rampant. Uh, in all areas of people activity all over the world. So there have to be white people, uh, and I would suspect a good number of them, doing things every day uh, that result in what happened uh, with the black children being kicked out of the swimming pool, uh, mm -hmm. result, into, uh, result in Michael Jackson being mistreated and dead at the age of 50 from cardiac arrest. White people have to be doing things on a daily basis. Um, Actually, I have concluded one of the primary things that white people do on a constant basis is deceive non-white people. Do you think that's true? Um, and if so, could you give some examples of ways in which white people, including yourself, um, deceive non-white people if you feel that that is true? Well, obviously that's a very good question. Um, first of all, of course it's true. Um, give some specific examples. That's more challenging. Um, I think that, I think first of all, there's a lot of traps that the system, like, I'm just going to call it the white system because there's, there's lots of language and semantics and things like that, but I'm going to talk about the white system, right? So I was born into the white system by um, a family that significantly benefited from the white system. Um, I, my great-grandmother um, very much passed as white, identified as white, even though, um, like, in Texas at the time, like, her blood or whatever, she wouldn't have been legally allowed to identify as white. Um, but white privilege has abounded in my family. Um, we moved to what is now called Texas, you know, 400 generations ago, um, the earliest one, earliest family in that particular area were in like the 1500s. Um, the 1500s in that particular area, obviously we stole the land from someone, right? And part of deceiving people of color is I don't even know who we stole the land from. So when I talk about like the land that my family grew up on, it's always been my family's land in my head. But obviously that's not true because somebody lived there before my family did. Um, as my family grew and, you know, had future generations and things like that, teaching the ways of being a Texan, teaching the ways of being a man or a woman, teaching the ways of being white, um, was never explicitly stated that this is how white people act. And um, in my immediate family, with my mother and my father, um, we were never told, I don't recall being told by my mother or my father that non-white people were bad. Um, I do know that I lived in a neighborhood that was majority white, if not completely white. Um, I went to a primarily white education system for public school, for college. Um, it wasn't until graduate school that I was able to pay attention enough to see if there were any people of color on campus. 
um, or non-whites in my classes. Um, one of the things that I think the white system teaches is just not to be able to see. Um, like that there's a connection between a, a, a conscious and a subconscious blindness that if you if you just go along this route, then you don't actually have to think about anything and the system won't hold you responsible or accountable for causing anybody pain. So it's really, I mean, it's like a luxury, luxury vacation. You just, you know, just don't pay attention, don't look, and don't notice. And then you'll, you'll never be held accountable for anything. Well, without explicitly stating any of those messages, I don't even know who I've hurt because I wasn't paying attention, which is, I think, a, a double injury. You know, so like when I, I went to a, a training called the Social Justice Training Institute in 2003, and it was in that space that I learned when you say the word race that I'm involved in that conversation. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that a race was called white. Even though the white people created the entire system, I never had to explicitly learn those lessons because it's just the life I led. So I distinctly remember in 2003 stating that I had segregated myself into a white neighborhood, I worked at a white job, and I didn't know any people of color, I'm a racist, I'm an asshole, I'm a horrible human being. And what I realized eventually, quickly, is that I lived in Brooklyn. I worked at New York University in Washington Square Park. I have a lot of friends that identify as non-white people. And literally, I know that this is so hard, it's hard for me to believe, but up until that moment, it never dawned on me to really see, to hold myself accountable for my actions, where I am, what I say, what I do, and the truth that my whiteness precedes me and has meaning to people regardless of my intent. I, I truly did not know that at all until 2003, which I know that's a really long story and I said I was going to be concise, but if you've ever been on the F or the G train in Brooklyn, if you can get on the subway and not think that you live in a community with non-whites, you're clearly blind. And, and actually what's even more sad is that if you take the word blind literally, I would imagine people who have some kind of visual impairment mm -hmm. may actually be more sensory correct. That's not really the correct language there, but like actually more accurate in their own perception than I think just a white person who's been socialized as a white person. Because part of that socialization is to be numb, dumb, and blind. And the reward is you will never be questioned or challenged. Mm, very interesting. This, again, the cows, Gusty Renegade and uh, Jessica Pettit. Um, I want to uh, go back um, just to kind of digest what you just said. Very, uh, very interesting. I want to start. Uh, you said the white system. Uh, words are very important. Uh, you said that we are in a system of white supremacy. Um, do you feel that the term white supremacy is a more accurate term than white system? 
Um, again, yes. Okay. The, the, the reasoning why I wanted to use the term white system versus white supremacy mm. is that what, what I think is really important, and when I do talk to colleagues and friends that identify as non-white or that I would identify as non-white, is that that small percentage of us that are working towards anti-racism work or dismantling white supremacy is that the, the wake-up call that happened is I realized that I am also a victim of supremacy. Um, that the victim may not, the victimization may not equate to death and violence and lower pay and hunger and the real pain and atrocities that are actually happening to non-whites under a system of white supremacy. But in that white system, we all are victims. Okay. And so um, that's okay. why I said the, the language a little differently. So okay. I think we um, have it in common okay. to some degree. Um, my response, and we said more conversation, my response uh, to that would be, uh, number one, I want to emphasize uh, that you did say the term white supremacy would be the most accurate term, is a more accurate term than white system. Uh, what I would uh, tell non-white people, victims of white supremacy, one major reason you really want to be ruthless about words and making sure you use the most accurate terms in discussion on racism, white supremacy, that is an extraordinary weapon to erode deception. It's very difficult to be dishonest in a conversation when everybody is using the correct words to talk about whatever it is that the discussion is supposed to be focused on. It becomes much more difficult to be deceptive when we're all going to make an effort to use the most accurate terms, which is what I try to do on this program. Uh, okay. I feel the term, uh, if, if you feel that that is correct and you see the logic behind what I'm saying, um, if you don't, that's fine too. We can discuss that. But I feel that that, uh, I feel it doesn't get any better than that. That is no, an I, okay. I totally support that. Okay. Um, the, 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 pro the problematic pieces of it, one, is that, one, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a complete hot mess thrown together by good intentions, right? Like that's who I am. But what, what I think is key, too, is that language, language changes by context um, and the emotion behind it, et cetera, et cetera. And because that occurs, it can be used as a very effective tool of deception. So I, I completely agree with you that you need to be really mindful what language people are using and what they're not using. And sometimes listening to what people don't say is a million times more important than what they do say. For um, sure. And so I, I think that that's really, I think that's huge. For sure. And the thing that was not said in the white system was the system of white supremacy. And I feel for non-white people, that is a very important word not to lose the fact that we are in a system of white supremacy uh, and overstanding white people are in a supreme position on this planet, in this universe, as it relates to the people that they say are not white. And if you are non-white, a victim of white supremacy, in my view, you probably don't want to drop that term supremacy. You want to keep white supremacy attached. Uh, and as you said, two of the folks that you think are doing constructive work, uh, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., one of his five suggestions when he was on this program was 
use the term white supremacy. Get comfortable saying the term white supremacy. Uh, even Professor Noel Ignatiev last week said he uses that term because he feels it's accurate and he feels that that makes white people uncomfortable, which is a good thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's I, fantastic. I also wanted to point out uh, Mr. Tim Wise, the admitted white supremacist Elvis Presley of counter-racism. Uh, Mr. Tim Wise said that white people are not victims of white supremacy. He said that white people, in his words, uh, are damaged by the system, but they are not victims. They are not the targets of this system. Uh, I uh, tend to be uh, on my guard about white people saying that they are victims uh, as well in this system because I don't think that is accurate. Uh, I think it is much more accurate to uh, keep it in the same frame of mind as when uh, we go to court for justice. Uh, you have clearly someone who is a victim they are the plaintiff, and you have someone who is a suspect, you have a defendant. If someone is raped, you have a victim of rape, and you have the perpetrator of the rape. You do not have the person who perpetrates rape also being labeled a victim of, of rape, or at least I have never heard that, and I would be stunned if I did ever hear someone say that the perpetrator of rape is also the victim of rape. Uh, I would encourage non-white people, and again, anyone who is about replacing white supremacy with justice. White people are not victims of white supremacy. Non-white people are the targets of this system. Uh, Mr. Robert Jensen, who was on the program, actually said the most accurate term for individuals who are classified as not white would be victim of white supremacy. So just a few points I wanted to uh, clarify. Um, and I, I agree with everything that you just said. So whether that makes me contradictory of the statement I said before, those are probably going to happen a lot. Um, I think that, it, I think that it's, it's, it's completely disingenuous to, for any white person to say that they are a victim of white supremacy um, in any form of sh or shape comparing themselves to how non-whites are victims of white supremacy. Um, when you mentioned the rape trial, um, what, what it made me think of is a friend of mine was murdered a number of years ago. And um, during the trial, um, the person who pled guilty to her murder was given the death penalty. And I distinctly remember sitting in the courtroom and thinking how, like, her family lost, well, they lost a grandchild, an unborn grandchild, and then their daughter. And then the person who pled guilty to the murder, that family is going to lose a son and a grandchild. And that no one really won. Does that make any sense? That in, in that particular court case, that everyone is losing. And what I think is powerful when, you t when I start talking about systems is that I, th I think that what it is that people lose under an, a system based not on justice, on injustice, is that every player loses. And so once, when, when I hear a lot of the comments that you've had on the interviews after the interviewer has hung up, and it's you and the people listening to your callers, is that why would white people actually work to dismantle this? They benefit so much. And that is completely true. And it's so much easier not 
to struggle against white supremacy. Like I would be rewarded to the nth degree if I would ever just shut up and stop writing. Um, but the key piece is, is that me realizing that I am complicit in a system that is oppressive and that there are the victims of white supremacy, non-whites, etc. I am complicit in that system that is causing that impression is reason for me to attempt to dismantle it and in the capital A and D and that social justice kind of mindset and that system by being complicit to that system, if I can dismantle it, then a true sense of justice, I mean, it's part of the reason I'm so attracted to your show is that by dismantling white supremacy and replacing it not with a system of justice, but just justice, by, by dismantling a oppressive system with justice and kindness and equity, then we all ultimately will benefit. I would agree. That's why I wake up every morning, or at least, you know, four days a week. I am an asshole probably three days a week. Oh, well, I suspect uh, non-white people would benefit uh, if more white people were committed uh, 24-7, but, you know, we shall see. Um, if you could, if you could give us um, – Hmm, curious here, decision. Okay, if you could give us uh, specific examples, because you said uh, it would be easier, you would be rewarded. You would get to be in the easy chair if you were not doing uh, work against the system of white supremacy. Uh, could you tell us uh, some specific ways that you have been uh, disciplined or reprimanded uh, by other white people for not upholding the system of white supremacy? <laughs> Like in the last five minutes or just over my life? Any um, examples. Any examples. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing just because that, that it, it seems so weird to name them as punishments because I'm, I'm actually proud of most of them. I, I have a therapist who's gotten me through some of the harder ones, but I wear them like badges of honor, um, like a hockey player would a bunch of scars or something. Hmm. I have been fired from five of six of my professional positions, um, of which I have had deeply powerful connections with students in a number of different developmental processes. Um, I, I believe of the five firings, um, four of them definitely, probably the fifth one, and had I been at my sixth job long enough, I probably would have been fired from them as well, that I feel that it is my responsibility to call out injustice. If I'm being asked to do it, I will not I will not do it. And if I see somebody else doing it, I feel that it is my job to say, we really should not be doing this. What we are doing is exclusive behavior, discriminatory behavior. Um, we are taking the easy way out. Um, we are not opening this process up to the most students possible. We are charging too much money. We are creating too difficult of a hula hoop system to get somebody accepted into this program. We are not giving out scholarships or financial aid to um, a diverse group of people. We are giving it to the same type of people based on who our bias and our own personal leanings go to. Um, that, that, that is my responsibility. Um, in doing that, I've lost five of six of my professional jobs. Now the bonus is, is that again, as a white person, in a system of white supremacy, I just go get another job. Um, when I've decided I don't want to work in another job, I opened my own business. And so now I travel around to colleges and universities and ruffle feathers and call things out and 
really name what people who are actually working within an institution of higher education cannot afford to because they could lose their job. Um, so now I feel like I'm able to do it on a much more wide scale. Um, very few people that I would call friends have been able to maintain a two-sided friendship with me um, because I expect from my close friends to continue to challenge me and to observe my behavior and call out when I do something that's inconsistent. Um, when I'm doing something that's benefiting from the unearned or inherited privileges that I get because I'm a white person, um, if I'm not being conscious of that, um, then I need my friends to call me out on it. And I expect my friends to want that in return. Um, that's a really big expectation. And I don't have that many really close friends. Um, it's, as a really social person, it's really hard for me to do that. But I don't want friends that just talk about what's on TV, you know, or believe that because the federal government said it, it must be true. Um, or they, that you cited earlier, the uh, students for the, the camp program that got uh, kicked out of a community pool that they had paid $1,900 to use. That's not a freak story. That, that, that there are thousands of stories every day that are not being told about what's happening in the world. And it's nauseating and disgusting to me that it's so easy for me just to pretend that they're not happening. Um, that's, that's the punishment. I'm using air quotes that you can't hear. Um, that's the punishment of doing anti-racist work. Um, or the, 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 the trap, right? Like part of um, the system of white supremacy is holding whites in a constant state of contradiction. So where one, myself and other people you have interviewed would tell all non-whites listening to this that you should be suspicious of all white people. There, there absolutely, positively is not an exception to that. Every person should be suspicious of all white people. Like, I don't care who they are. You should be suspicious. And, A-N-D capitalized in that social justice way, and there are whites who are really trying to stay conscious. And through their actions and behaviors, you might be able to find moments where you don't need to be suspicious. And yet I still encourage you to maintain a level of suspicion because I'm not always conscious. I've, I have been socialized in a system that has taught me to never be conscious. So I'm, I'm trying, like it's, it's like taking on a new sport, right? Like I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and then I forget how to do it every once in a while or something. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, okay. But, uh, I want to point this out because I think this is this is critical for the the non-white people, the victims of white supremacy. Um, outstanding, what you just said about uh, being suspicious of all white people. However, and this is something that I have noticed many white people do. Uh, Tim Wise is extraordinary at this. They will concede your point. You should should you be suspicious of all white people? Yes, of course, certainly, but. Then they will continue to talk and say, but there are some white people who are really trying, who are doing great work, they're doing the best that they can, and there are moments where you can let your guard down with them, even though a lot of white people are trained to do this unconsciously, subconsciously. I myself even make mistakes. 
in my view, that is not giving the best, most constructive advice to the people who desperately need help. Non-white people really, in my view, really need to hear from white people. Be suspicious of all white people. Silence. Nothing else. Then, or let me finish because this is important, the why you should be suspicious of all white people no exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts, not even the coolest white person in the world who does every possible uh, compensatory request. Uh, they fulfill it. They do everything that you ask. They have read every Tim Wise book. Uh, they buy non-white people copies of Neely Fuller Jr.'s book by the thousands. They do every possible thing you could ask. You should still be suspicious of them under the system of white supremacy and no slack. If you could, could you break down the why, because I think that would be helpful. Why should non-white people be suspicious of all white people? And, I mean, I need a home run on this one for all the non-white people who are listening so they can really understand why there should never be any exceptions as long as the system of white supremacy exists. Okay. I I will do my best at a home run. Okay. The, the, the winding up the bat is that it is, that it is a constant state of contradictions. So like if, if we look at language, like to be constructive, I want to focus on the fact that this is a contradiction and that I, as a white person under white supremacy, must stay in that place of contradiction, right? Like I'm not a non-white person. Like I benefit from white privilege. And part of being uncomfortable as a white person is that I have to stay in that place of contradiction. So. The, the home run answer to why I believe all non-whites should be suspicious of all whites, regardless of what, what work they've done, how much compassion a white person is showing, how authentic they're showing up, if they're choosing ignorance, if they're just not informed, I just didn't know, whatever. Like there's a million things that can be very true and can be very deceptive and can be both and can be one or the other that situations will come up where white people are happening. The reason why non-whites should be suspicious of all whites is that as a white person, I'm representing myself and I recognize that I have a responsibility I'm really representing white people right now, is that I, at the heart of it, cannot trust myself. I can't trust myself in every instance, in every context, with every person I have ever consciously or unconsciously been in the same space, I can't 100% say, even with my compassion and my authenticity and my try, trying, 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 I can't trust that 100% of my actions past, present, and future will be targeting the dismantling of white supremacy. And if I can't ultimately trust myself 100%, I have absolutely no room to ask anybody else to. Is, is that a home run? Uh, we shall see. Uh, I guess I will judge by the results of folks uh, in the chat room. Hopefully they'll type, uh, and I'll see what they say. But uh, to me, that sounded pretty good. Um, 
I hope, again, I try to judge results by the non-white people and if there's a change in behavior or if they pick up things that are said in the show and incorporate that into their thought, speech, and action in attempting to replace white supremacy with justice. Um, that is one I'm going to use because I've heard white people say that before, that they cannot help themselves from mistreating non-white people. Um, you didn't say that, but you said you just, I can't trust myself that I won't be perpetuating and acting out racism, white supremacy. Um, even, you know, doing this work and being committed to it, I really can't tell you 100% that I'm not going to do that now or in the future. Uh, and I think non-white people really need to keep that in mind at all times, no exceptions, even if they sound as good as Tim Wise. And I think a lot of the people in this chat room do not uh, or are not fans of Mr. Tim Wise, which I think is exceptional. And according to your logic, you just broke down the why. And I think even Mr. Wise, he co-signed. I don't have to think he said it on the show. He said the same thing. You should be suspicious of all white people, no exceptions, even him. So hopefully this will sink in and this will uh, transfer in the way that non-white people conduct themselves with white people. Can, can I add something on my victory lap spin possibly? Certainly. So as a white person who's trying to do this, I also encourage other whites that might be listening or eventually listening to the podcast or, podcast or something, is that I'm also suspicious of other whites who say that they're doing anti-racism work. Hmm. And so, like, I've had conversations with Tim about, like, whether we were talking about doing this work for pay, whether we're doing this work as white people, whether we're doing this work as a man versus a woman, et cetera, we've had some good conversations about it, as I have with other consultants. And what, what I think is really key, and again, this is the social justice both and, is that I think that it is safe to assume that everybody has, but when I say everybody, let me be clear, that people who are benefiting from privilege, so whichever system we're talking about on this radio show, we are talking about white supremacy. So when I say everybody, I should actually be saying whites. So when white people are doing anything, I think that it is a much safer bet to assume that there's a likely chance of an ulterior motive. Whether that ulterior motive is conscious or unconscious is irrelevant. It is an ulterior motive. So as a non-white person, and as another white person, I think that it's important that that suspicion level is there because it's for your safety. Like one of the things that I talk about in my trainings, and so and I don't know if this is going to be a segue to the article, and I know you have a lot of questions for me, but I think that this is really important, is when I named my company Social Justice and Diversity because people who hire me are typically in colleges and universities. So whether they are non-white or white, they have to function in a white institution because colleges and universities are a white institution. When, so they don't necessarily know the language between social justice or diversity or any of that kind of stuff. So I'm both, hire me. So one of the things that I state is that diversity trainings have taught me to never make judgments and to never make assumptions. So what happens is, is that as a white person who's trying to do the right thing, I don't actually know how to navigate the universe without making judgments and assumptions. What, the difference, I think, between social justice and diversity, there's, I mean, there's lots, but one of them is, is that what I've had to learn is, is that the judgments and assumptions that I make aren't going anywhere. 
and that I don't, as a white person benefiting within white supremacy, I cannot sit around and wait until I have read everything, seen every movie, eat, eaten every kind of whatever ethnic means food, until I am perfect, then I can be released amongst other human beings. That's not realistic. What is realistic is for me to realize that I make judgments and assumptions for, and three things result. One is I was totally correct. Those judgments and assumptions may be based on stereotypes or my own experiences or something, but I was right. See, I was right. Number two is that I was wrong. And then I have to adjust my own experiences for future judgments and assumptions, which I may or may not do, may or may not remember, may or may not be effective. The third thing is, is that I might just feel safe. And that one is really important because what I, whatever the word safe means, for some people means not being killed. For other people, it means not feeling wrong. And that degree of safety is where judgments and assumptions come from. And so part of being suspicious of all whites is a safe measure because if as a white person, if I can't trust myself, chances are I'm going to do something. What would be worse is actually, for me, unknowingly, what's worse than that is knowingly, consciously doing something that actually hurts someone else and I don't even step up to the plate to care. Hmm. Hmm. To continue the baseball reference. Very interesting. Very interesting. Hmm. I uh, yes, I do think that was constructive. Again, I'm going to check the. I'm not looking at it right now, but I am going to check the chat room to see uh, what the response was. Hopefully, there are non-white people who heard that live, and they can type or call in uh, and share their views on what they thought about that or ask uh, additional questions. Um, since you said you have uh, had conversations with uh, Mr. Tim Wise, who's been on the cows, was here last month, uh, and other white people who alleged to be doing uh, anti-racist work, um, I wanted to, I guess, look at some of, you have an article. Uh, it's called uh, Showing Up White. And this article, it's actually linked if you uh, are in the chat room, if you're listening to this at Blog Talk Radio. If you look at the description for this program, uh, this uh, article is linked, uh, Showing Up White. It's in blue. You can click it and uh, check the article out. Uh, I found it very constructive. And uh, I generally... Um, don't have too many kudos to hand out to white people for the work that they have done. Um, this is pretty constructive. Um, Jessica Pettit wrote this, and it basically, uh, she goes through different ways that white people uh, who allege to be doing anti-racist work, uh, that even in doing this work, they're still practicing uh, racism, white supremacy. And she bullets, I mean, it's a ton of different uh, ways in which this plays out, and I have some uh, some of the highlights here. Um, but before I get into those highlights, one of the, the things that she talks about in the setup for uh, getting to these different points is that when she was doing the groundwork to kind of get this project going, she says she kind of sent out uh, some feelers to different folks to get feedback. And she said that non-white people, in the article, she said that non-white people uh, responded uh, by defending white people. And saying, you know, I know, I know different white folks. Hey, you wrote the article. You can, you can share with them. How did the non-white people respond to you? You know, your initial setup for this work. 
oh, this was fascinating. And one of my favorite, like, are you kidding me pieces. So the vast majority of the non-whites that responded, and when I say that, there might have been like eight people who totally responded, or in total who responded, and of the eight, I think maybe four of them I would identify as non-white. Okay. So about half the people who responded. Uh, immediately said that I would, I'm going to quote, paraphrase quote, um, I am alienating and isolating well-intentioned white people. Hmm. Which, yes, that's my point. Hmm. Two, I might, this is scary, make white people uncomfortable. <laughs> well, that's why I wake up every day. So that sounds good. Um, there was a lot of people, too, who were very concerned that um, talking about how whites show up as facilitators in diversity trainings that I, I might not get a good draw of people mm. and that the topic may not seem relevant and they weren't really sure if there was really that much content. Mm. So the first time that I offered the workshop, just for some information, the first time I offered the workshop, there were 20 chairs in the room and there were probably about 110 people who came. Wow. Um, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I'm trying to target whites who do diversity or social justice trainings, but unfortunately about two-thirds of the people who showed up at that first workshop were people I would identify as non-white. Okay. And um, so I think that it, it definitely was it drew in a lot of people. Um, but then it's really hard to explain, and we were talking about this a little bit before the interview, that I don't think that every white person in every context, at every time, at every moment, is able to hear, by the way, all whites are racist. All whites are complicit in a white supremacist system. Like, if those statements are being closed down to, by white ears, if the statements are being made by non-whites, the messages aren't going to get across even more. Because it'll look like some non-white agenda, right? Like that's just another angry non-white person. And I, I think that that's important to mention because it's it's really hard to, for me as a facilitator who wants to make everybody happy and have answers for everyone to tell non-white people who ask me, how do I make my white coworkers aware that they are racist? And I just tell them, I, I don't think you can. I don't know. And it's, that's probably the hardest part of my job. Um, hmm. So I know you have lots of questions about the article, but it, it made me think of something else. So I'll, I'll just say what it made me think of, and then you can add it to the TILA questions if you find it appropriate. That okay. sounds good. So in the chat room, usually when I listen to the interviews, I'm in the chat room. And, um, and I think at least three different times, I've had people in the chat room who identify as non-white ask me, as a non-white person, what can I do? to dismantle um, white supremacy. Mm. And so the, the cliff note of my answer is you have to work on your own dominant identities. Um, so we can talk about that at a, a later point if you like. But okay. that, that came out of a lot of the work that I've done in these workshops with non-whites in the Showing Up White article. Okay. Hmm. I wanted to, uh, to make sure uh, that wasn't lost because I, I felt that was uh, very interesting uh, in putting this article together, which I think is very constructive. I would recommend the folks, if you're listening uh, at the Blog Talk radio site, look at the description, click on Showing Up White, 
very constructive. It will not be a waste of your time. Um, I don't think um, that the non-white people, and you said it was four, roughly four of them, the non-white people uh, responded to uh, Jess doing this work to point out ways that white people who allege to be doing anti-racist work, um, how they, even in doing this work, are still practicing racism, white supremacy, consciously and or unconsciously. Non-white people defended white people. Some of them even, in her article, she uh, writes that some of them even uh, listed specific white people like, oh, no, 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 see, I know my friend, uh, he doesn't do that, he's great, I've learned so much from him, uh, which is why I heavily emphasize suspicious of all white people, no exceptions, period. And the why which he gave, and again, I think that was constructive as well. Some of the specific things or ways that she points out that white people uh, practice racism, white supremacy, even in doing alleged anti-racist work, uh, she uh, she writes that uh, uh, that white people who do this work, she uses I uh, in the article, uh, but looking to non-whites for acceptance and approval. Can mm-hmm. you? Share about how white people, uh, in doing alleged anti-racist work, practice white supremacy by looking to non-white people for acceptance and approval. Yes, <laughs> there there is a painful truth in the fact that at the end of a social justice training, I get a line of people typically who want to talk to me afterwards or sign something or something, ask questions, tell me their story. If I'm making these numbers up right now. If 10 white people, typically white women about my age, were probably wearing similar shoes or clothing, 10 women can tell me I did a great job. And I'm like, thanks, thanks, whatever, thanks, thanks, whatever, thanks, thanks, whatever. One person that I can identify as a non-white person Mm. tells me that I did a good job. Mm. I am like cloud nine. Wow. Like it is a visceral, physical emotional and spiritual thing that happens. Wow. And I think, so I'm, I'm still working on this. Like one of the questions in the chat room is, what, what is she doing to get rid of her racism? I'm just trying to find it. So I, like I'm a, it is an elusive shadow that I'm constantly chasing. So if I can find it, then I can at least confront it and talk with my racism. It, but this, this is connected because when I realized, first of all, that there was a pattern, that when I get evaluations back, the only evaluation material I ever remember is critical. Mm-hmm. And when I get compliments, the only compliments I ever hear are from people I identify as non-whites. Wow. So if I hold that as a pattern, then how I to answer the person in the chat room, how do I get rid of my racism, I, I can't get rid of it. it I am racist. I, I am a racist. I am racist. You can use whichever, like, particles you want in the English language. I am racist. So if I can identify those patterns, I then can begin to dig and do my own work to figure out why. Why is that important? Why do I need the approval of non-whites? And it's so there is this concept, I believe, of the good white. And I think that it is directly connected to being a good girl a good Texan, a good American, being patriotic, 
all of that crap, I think, is all the system, white supremacy is definitely part of that T-H-E, capital T, capital S system, that I need to know that I have the approval of what it is that I'm doing before I can do it again. And what I, how that is supporting, so this is my own self-work, right? So if you ask me next week what I think about this, I might totally disagree with myself. Mm. But right now, today, what I think is key is that I realize, and this is how it supports white supremacy, is that I can sit on my porch and have people doing things, labor or not, that maintain my current choice of lifestyle. And I am so dominant and so powerful that those people doing the things that make my lifestyle choice happen while I'm sitting on a metaphorical porch, I am so powerful that those people will actually tell me that they like it. Wow. Wow. So once you kind of uncover that, going back to the first round of questions, my option is to put my tail between my legs and be like, I am embarrassed to be in front of human beings because that is the ugliest truth I have discovered today, and I'm not proud of that. And so then I can go through the emotions of guilt or shame or denial or anger or something like that. But what it really is is that that's a kernel of truth. And so as far as, like, what am I going to do with that now? If I quit, that kernel of truth stays true. Other people probably can see that kernel way before I did. And it doesn't dismantle anything. What I can choose to do, and it's hard, and everything in the system is telling me not to do this, and I just told non-whites to be suspicious of me, so that's going to be less non-whites coming up to me, giving me an encouragement, slapping me on the back. Good job, right? Because I just told you don't do that to me because I'm an asshole. So that's less people giving me positive feedback in a system that's encouraging me not to keep doing this where the struggle comes in in doing the struggle of anti-racism as a white person is that I must. It is my responsibility in, in marginal repayment of what I have inherited and how I have benefited by being white in a system of white supremacy. I must, must stay in it as much as I can. Hmm. I, uh, again context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade and uh, Jessica Pettit, um, I, uh, as I was listening to that response, which I found fascinating, I was reminded of the program this past week with uh, Professor Noel Ignatiev, uh, author of uh, How the Irish Became White. And uh, I didn't think he said a lot of constructive things during the program. Uh, I felt that he was not courteous. Uh, he just was not a pleasant person to speak with for the most part. Um, I, I was not impressed at all. I, I didn't think uh, he, he's not on my favorite list. He gets no kudos from me. Uh, but one thing, I, well, I found several things, several aspects of the program constructive. He didn't necessarily say anything in terms of giving me constructive information, but I felt there were very interesting parts in the program. Specifically, I got the feeling that 
he was upset uh, with, I guess, me question. I know he was definitely not pleased when I said that I didn't feel uh, when he said him classifying himself as or not classifying as a white person uh, in the way that he said it. I didn't feel it was constructive, and I don't think it's constructive. Uh, and he got upset about that. Uh, and he, and to connect, he went further later in the program, and he talked about when he intervened on behalf of a non-white person, both at his job and in the street, uh, when a non-white person was being arrested. And he said both times black people um, thanked him and were so pleased with his efforts. And specifically, he talked about when he intervened uh, when a black man was being arrested. And he said an elderly black woman came up to him and just thanked him. And he said he would take that to his creator uh, after he died and use that as an example of, of a good deed that he did. And I just thought, wow, that is really fascinating. Uh, it, I have seen this play out a lot uh, where white people who allege to be doing this anti-racist work seem to – it seems like a whole nother level of, of a high in terms of doing this work, most likely practicing white supremacy as you are doing it, and getting this adulation and adoration from the very victims uh, that you ostensibly are mistreating. Um, I just I find it fascinating. Um, I think one way of eroding it is to put that out there that it seems that white people enjoy, uh, and it really does something for them. I have even I coined a term. I feel this is a process of white redemption where white people can feel really really good, feel really really not racist, and like they're doing great work when they get the praise of non-white people. I mean, it's like it, it really can't get any better for that as a white person in the system of white supremacy to be able to sit on metaphorically, same metaphor that you use, to be able to sit on the porch in the master's house and have all the slaves saying, yes, that master is not a racist. That is the best white person in the world. Can you believe what they just did? Can you believe what they just told us? Oh, my gosh. Glory be to God. Thank you so much, white person. I mean, it just can't get any better than that. Like, I'm still in charge of the plantation. I'm still running the show. And the slaves think I'm great. My God, this is – I'm in heaven. I am in heaven. And which is what he said. That is exactly what uh, Professor Ignatiev said last week. I think this is very fascinating. I could spend a lot more time on this. I uh, I want to get to some more points because she has a lot of uh, interesting uh, things there. But I just – I find that whole aspect very fascinating, and I would encourage non-white people to – Pay attention uh, to, and I see it with Tim Wise. That's why I'm so incredibly suspicious of Tim Wise, and I think he's one of the most dangerous uh, white people I've ever met is because white, excuse me, non-white people adore this man, and I just don't understand why. Like, well, I do understand why, but, I mean, it just, it really racks my brain. They just, uh, they look at him like he's Jesus because he talks about racism and, you know, gives them a tidbit and, you know, they give him 20 bucks for his book or whatever and roll on. But at any rate, well, can I can I add one thing? Yeah. So what what I think is really important is that everything that you just said, first of all, I think is completely valid. So I, I think that that's important to state. And I also think that it's important that so so you have let we use me as an example, obviously. So I'm white. I was raised in a white supremacist society. I am a white supremacist. I am racist. I just said that I have to be suspicious of myself and all other white people. And if non-whites give me compliments, it's probably rooted in something bad. So I just eliminated any external feedback. 
which you have to be really careful because by eliminating all of this external feedback, I really have no direction, support, role models, or people to really talk to. So what I think is important is, is that, like, I don't agree with Tim on everything. I am relatively new to Noelle's work. I just recently read um, How the Irish Became White, and um, I've, I have not met him, etc. And if it weren't for people like Tim Wise and Noelle's work and generations of other whites doing anti-racist work, I would have no one to turn to which would make it even more likely for me to stop. And so, like, when we talk about the White Privilege Conference that Eddie Moore Jr. puts on, that that is a place for me to realize I'm not alone. I can be challenged. I am certainly not done. That's a really important thing for white people who do this work to realize is that there is still stuff for me to uncover. I am still hurting people. I am still being racist. I am still racist. I am still complicit. And, and in those spaces, there are the few people that I can hear that will keep me doing the work. And so, like, even, like, when you talk about Nellie Fuller and Dr. Wesley, et cetera, like, whoever it is that people want to follow, if it motivates anyone to do whatever they can to dismantle white supremacy, I don't care if you agree or not. Just keep trying to dismantle stuff. You know, I mean, there was a, a lot of stuff that I listened to from their videos that I totally disagree with. But you actually said in one of the, one of the interviews, I feel like I'm kind of stalking you because I've listened to so many of your interviews lately, but that um, you were talking to a caller and you said that we're all in the same boat, just non-whites are at the bottom of the boat. Well, if that boat is the Titanic, the whole boat sank. You know, and yes, the people who survived were extremely upper class, very, very privileged people who were on the Titanic. And non-whites who are servants and workers of the boat to create this luxury liner experience for the whites that were on the boat, it is, it, I just think it's important to use that metaphor. And so one of the things that I think is so powerful is that and, and I'm going to use the word hurtful to me because I think that that might be more on target than like disrespectful or something, and I don't mean it in a triggering way. But people hear Tim Wise and want to change the world. Great. Like, run with that, you know. And then, like, Noel's purpose on the planet since the early 60s has been making people uncomfortable and getting angry. And so when he's on your interview, every time I've ever heard him interviewed now, he's very similar. He's very similar answers, and that is his authentic self. So what I took from that is that you just have to keep showing up. You know, and, and if anyone can hear it and continue to be motivated to dismantle white supremacy, it's going to take all of us to do it. Um, again, I want to make sure I get as many from your article, and we're going to take callers too. Um, my, I'll shut uh, up. <laughs> oh, no problem. My my thought. Um, I heard Tim Wise, and the the specifically, I focused on non-white people. I have not only interviewed Tim Wise twice; I have seen him live in action. Um, and when I watched him live, I really didn't focus on him. I really devoted my attention. I was blessed to be able to sit in the front 
of the church where he spoke, and I was sitting at an angle, so I really was able to look at the faces of almost the entire crowd uh, for the duration of the presentation. And uh, Mr. Uh, Ignatiev last week says, you judge so-called anti-racist whites by results. The results that I see from Mr. Wise's work is not that non-white people have a better understanding of racism, white supremacy, and how to go about dismantling it. What I see is non-white people who love and adore Tim Wise and absolutely refuse to hear that this person is an admitted white supremacist. Uh, that right there totally, for me, totally destroys whatever else he's talking about or doing because he does have constructive information on racism, white supremacy. He has tons, which is what I've seen consistently with white people and is why my show runs the way it does, why I have mostly white people on the show because I have concluded white people are very informed about this. I don't see non-white people running out to change the world. I see white people who are slaves on the plantation saying, Master is great, he is the best thing in the world, we loved him wise. Um, and I think that is extremely problematic, and he actually on the show said the exact same thing. Uh, and at the end of the day, the system is still here, so in my view, the same thing that you should. There should not be kudos uh, being handed out uh, to white people, any white person, or even any non-white people at this point. There's a lot of work to do take what we think is constructive, and I think it's important to point out when uh, there are people that you, that Tim Wise, people who allege to be doing anti-racist work, and the results look a little suspicious, which is uh, my point there. But I want to point push forward with your specific sure. article, which I do think is very constructive. Um, in, in your article, uh, you said that uh, you, that conversations uh, you didn't use the term racism, I'm substituting, uh, but conversations about racism, white supremacy, are designed to make white people feel safe and comfortable, um, and that that is a form of practicing racism, white supremacy. Can you, uh, can you elaborate that, on that for our listeners, please? Um, yes. Yeah. I think that a lot of workshop culture, the first thing you do is you set up a safe space and um, be, like behavioral guidelines mm. of what we're going to do in this space. So I do a lot of controversial things, and one of the things that I do, um, well, one, I don't ever get anybody's name. Like I don't want to waste time in the room where pretending I'm going to remember anybody's name and from an hour from now. Mm. That makes white people very uncomfortable because they like to be able to say who they are and where they're coming from. Mm. They, we call it networking. So mm. you network in the hallway. I got shit to do. The second thing is is that you create these safe space rules. And what I think is really important is that safe space rules, so part of the uh, Social Justice Training Institute does a very similar program, but we I have had workshops where you divide up non-whites and white, and you create your safe space rules. And inevitably what happens is non-whites might come up with two or three things. And the white group will come up with 164 things. <laughs> that they need in order to feel safe. But the reality of it is, is that nobody is going to bring a gun. No one is going to take your roof over your head. No one is going to take your food away. No one, like, what do you mean by safe? 
And when you really, like as a white person, when I was really pushed around this, again, a kernel of truth that I was able to unfold is that part of my whiteness is that all of the rules are created for me, all of the maps were created for me, and I automatically get all updates. So I am used to not just knowing everything, but I don't even have to know that I know everything because the system was written for me. So if I'm going to partake in a conversation where I'm nervous about what's going to come up that I don't know, then I need to have all these things in place so that I can be prepared to make mistakes. No one will judge me. No one will make assumptions. And I can feel like I can hold on to that space on my porch. But the reality of it is, is that if you're really going to have a real conversation, you're going to have to get off the porch, period. And even if you do get off the porch and go, we're, I'm maintaining this metaphor for really no apparent reason, but if you actually do get off the porch and go to the fields and you talk to the people who are scarred and bleeding and sweating and starving and horrifically oppressed, right, if the, the plantation owner goes to talk to the fields, the fact that they're the plantation owner hasn't left them. And the fact that the slave is in the field holding a rake hasn't left either. So it, it creates a false sense of safety that I believe is completely rooted in supporting privilege and white supremacy. Mm. So I don't do it. I don't do safe space rules. We, we are typically socialized to behave. And by behave, I mean we know to like stand in line and wait for a bathroom stall. We know that generally you sit in a chair at a table and somebody talks at you or tells you what to do in a workshop. The rest is organic and up to what people bring into the space. Outstanding. I, uh, I wholeheartedly agree, um, and I have said repeatedly um, and, and exactly what I told Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr. when he was on the show. The white people at the White Privilege Conference, they looked happy. They did not look uncomfortable at all. And I said, I really don't even need to watch anymore. White people are this happy. Nothing constructive is happening here to work against white supremacy. Now, that might be a bit of a jump, but it seems to be very much in line with what you just said. Uh, and I could be wrong. And I want to emphasize, I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Eddie Moore, Jr. He is an all-star and a really nice person. Um, I'm just, you know, talking about results. Uh, with what I saw in the video footage, um, you uh, you also said that uh, this is in the article again showing up white. You said that I feel a need to over intellectualize topics. Uh, can you break that one down for us? Sure. If college, university, high school, education in general, um, in this country and in Europe were specifically for white elite members, and that still exists today. Um, occasionally we let some other people in, but we let you in because you need to then learn how to do white school, right? I mean, white school, that's called history classes, English classes, how we walk down a hallway, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the, like, motherland of where you learn whiteness and where whiteness excels. And so 
when talking about challenging and difficult subjects, it is a hell of a lot easier to come at them from an introspective, academic mindset because you can remove that from your heart. When I say the word complicit, it's like putting a needle in my heart. But when I say racial oppression, well, I've, I've spent 35 years not even thinking that I belonged in the category of race. Mm -hmm. So that's how removed it is, let alone emotionally attached. If I, I deal with a lot of college students who have taken really good classes and have read all of the books and can talk about intersectionality and all of these things to the nth degree and have no idea what they currently are doing in their current lives with strangers or with friends that are supporting white supremacy. Hmm. They can't do it. They're like, no, 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 but I read this book. Or, well, let's talk about this. You know, one of the things I mentioned earlier is about doing this work from your dominant identities versus your subordinate identities I think is really important. And in some of your interviews you talk about, and this is my language being applied to your, your conversations, but the, the dodge game of why well, I don't want to talk about being white, so let me talk about being queer or being a woman or ability issues or something. And so if I can take the conversation into my place of a subordinated identity, mm -hmm. then I'm, I'm with you. See, I'm a victim too. We should play and get along with each other really well. And that's a great way as a white person, I don't actually have to admit I'm white. Not only do I not have to admit I'm white, but I am complicit in a white supremacist system. No, 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 let's focus on how poor I am or that I'm a lesbian or that I'm not a Christian or that my parents died when I was really young. Like if I can focus on those things, I do believe that you can make some change. I also believe it's really important to form some community support around those subordinated identities. Mm -hmm. And I believe from my dominant identity, where I inherited power and privilege, it costs me almost nothing. I mean, it is a struggle. It's cost me jobs. It's cost me relationships. But to do anti-racism work from a place of whiteness is, I believe, more powerfully dismantling the system. Hmm. Very interesting. I'm going to use that uh, metaphor, the dodge game. I, uh, I think that will be constructive. Um, this one I felt was uh, just fabulous, and I have seen this uh, over and over and over. Uh, you said crying, guilt, defensiveness, anger, frustration, denial, avoidance, dismissal, disgust, uh, disgust of self are common reactions of mine uh, in discussions uh, on racism, white supremacy, where you don't feel comfortable or you're feeling challenged. Can you talk about the ways in which white people can uh, express these different emotions and how that ends up uh, perpetuating the system of white supremacy? Yes, and probably to your much frustration, it is yet another both-and contradictory answer. <laughs> what I mean by that is, is that I can genuinely feel guilt, shame, anger, fear, like I, I, I have the emotionality or emotional maturity to actually manifest those emotions in appropriate times that are genuine and authentic. Mm. And I also have been trained that as a woman with pretty big boobs, I can use my cleavage and my tears to manipulate almost any situation. Mm. So 
Are we talking about getting out of a speeding ticket? Are we talking about getting the clock set on my VCR while my cable is being installed? Are we talking about me having a genuine conversation about my racist actions, behaviors, inactions, and emotional realities? Mm. Both of those can look very similar. And when we were talking earlier about being suspicious of all whites, the slippery slope when you when I, you I know that you have some stuff with Tim. So, but what I what I think is important. Oh wait a minute! Can, I want to I want to clean that up. So, I don't so, have stuff with Tim. I just am suspicious that he right. probably is practicing white supremacy. Well, so I think all white people are. I mean, the, and I, I I think that what I meant by you have stuff is that like he's the only person you've interviewed that you refer to like as referred to or as known as the Mr. Tim Wise, like that's his name. So because you, you haven't said like referred to as Jessica Pettit, like that's my name. But anyway, so oh, I, I've said that about, a, oh, I don't want to interrupt, but I have okay. uh, referenced other people as known as such and such and such. Okay. But usually it's like, like I'm referred to as Margaret Cho. That's not my name. That's what people compare me to. Mm. Anyway, now, now this is semantics in a different way. So I, I don't want, I want to make sure that I'm not losing my point. So what I think is, because I get distracted by sparkly chickens. So what I think is important is that if I say I'm to be suspicious of all whites, there are also times where someone who is white can have an authentic reaction or inaction, emotional or physical or behavioral, that is genuine. And it's not until you can really have those relationships with someone to be able to know. And so, like, one of the, like, some of the stuff that I, I've listened to um, as far as the code, I didn't know anything about the code, so I felt like I needed to do my homework, mm -hmm. that, that I believe is, it's a little more complicated in that it, it's not, how do I say this? I, I believe when someone walks into the room, I immediately judge and make assumptions on them based on how I perceive that individual showing up based on group memberships. So someone walks in, I identify them as a woman, I identify them as black, I identify them as older than me, I identify them as wealthier than me, and more educated than me. Mm -hmm. Group membership. Then this person and I end up sitting at a table next to each other, I'm chatty, I end up talking to them, and I find out that I'm right or wrong about certain things. And then as I, over time, and for some people, it's a short period of time. For some people, it's a long period of time. I get to know that person as an individual. As I get to know that person as an individual, some of the slippery slopes there are like the exception, tokenization, things like that. And you can just have a real genuine relationship with an individual who at times may be like, what did you do that for? Like that's totally counter what I know of you as an individual and you just showed up again as your group membership. Does that make any sense? I, I'm really not trying to be dodgy with my language here, but the article around showing up, what I think is really powerful about it is that I, it can be given to individuals that I know are doing really powerful good work around dismantling white supremacy. And it's a reminder that this is what we, this is our group. So we're responsible as a, as a member of this group of white people this is how we behave as a group, and this is also how we behave as individuals sometimes. 
even those of us that have been the most self-reflective and authentic. So, like, the, the truth of what you said, seeing a bunch of happy people at a white privilege conference makes you suspicious. There's a lot of racist shit that happens at the white privilege conference, a lot. And what really is saddening is that a lot of the non-whites who attend the conference put their guards down a little bit that they have to use in the real world when they're in a session. So the second the session is over and they have to go to a restaurant, they might put their guard back up. But when they're in a, a conference session, they may take it down because this is the white privilege conference. It's supposed to be full of white people who get it. But we're not consistent. <laughs> That's the downside. And so something that wouldn't even really be that big of a deal or that new of a thing outside of the, co the context of the conference hurts so much more deeply in that space. And so mm. this next year we are actually, and I'm working with Eddie on this, is that I'm not creating safe space rules for white people. I'm going to create holding white people accountable rules. And it will be a bulleted list because we know how white people like lists. And it's our responsibility. If white people are responsible for white supremacy, it is white people's responsibility to dismantle it. So part of those happy faces are very much hurtful, oblivious people who are trying to take the pill and be a good one. And some of those happy faces, too, are not feeling alone and feeling a little rejuvenated, like, okay, I'm going to stay in this. You know, that like you're, what you were talking about with Tim's reaction with non-whites, Tim's words keep me in the fight. And that sometimes has to be enough. Very. I, I hope, again, to be at the uh, White Privilege Conference this April. Uh, oh, we'll get to meet each other. That'll be great. Yeah, you should you should talk to Eddie about that, too, because he said uh, he would uh, be more than happy to have me there, and uh, I would love to be doing shows live. That would, man, I, uh, that would be a lot of fun, I think, very constructive, and uh, I, I do not think, or it would be my intention, uh, I don't think the white people would be comfortable with Gus uh, at the conference uh, to chat about white supremacy. I do not think they would be jumping and applauding for Gus T. Renegade at the White Privilege Conference. But uh, I want to I want to uh, get to the phone lines. I'm going to get two more from from the article that I think are good, which is tough because I think there are a lot of these that are really good. But uh, the phone line three four seven two one five six zero seven one. I'm going to take two more from this great uh, article showing up white. Uh, and then hit the phone lines. Um, you said that uh, when I am, or I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to pick this one. Uh, figurative language, metaphors, examples, and interactive games are written in my language and from my experience. I have to assume that means are written from the racist white, uh, white supremacist perspective. Uh, can you uh, pick out some of the details as to why that's important and what non-white people should take from that? I don't necessarily know what non-white people should take from it. Um, I think that the vast majority of my audiences, as, and I think Tim said this as well, the vast majority of his audiences are also uh, majority white. Mm. Um, my, most of the students I've ever had in a classroom have been white. Mm. Um, most of the authors that I have read in middle school, high school, college, graduate school, and in the classes that I have taught mm. have been white. Um, occasionally, there's the token, right? Like, I'm sure Toni Morrison's sales go through the roof because she's usually the token not white person. Mm. Um, 
maybe that'll diversify someday. Um, I think that the examples when, again, we're writing textbooks and things like that, the, the language that is used is, well, the, the most common denominator, right, like middle America. Well, you know, non-whites live in the middle of America. We just don't listen to them there either. Mm. So they don't show up in our curriculum. They don't show up in our examples. Um, a lot of non-white facilitators that I've worked with have created games and metaphors and interactive workshop pieces and things like that to use. And they have a significantly harder time getting them published. They have a harder time getting the word out there, getting accepted to conferences, etc. Um, because people don't know them as well because, again, the entire system is created and maintained and supported by white people. Um, is that what you meant? <laughs> or I, again, just uh, I think I wanted to point out. I think it, it uh, would be very constructive for non-white people to get uh, this article and uh, a lot of the material that white people have put out to study uh, racism, white supremacy. I think specifically with this article, a lot of this stuff. Uh, if I had got this maybe five years ago, all of this would have been new to me. Like at this point, uh, I have seen several of these things in action, the crying thing, I point that out specifically, but a lot of this stuff would have been brand new to me five years ago. And I think for a lot of non-white people, it would be new to them now. So I think they could benefit from this. From that specific example, I think uh, non-white people, again, paying very close attention to words because uh, you really want to make an effort to use the most accurate terms uh, to discuss racism, white supremacy, and being very careful around uh, metaphors and, and just people not being as clear as they can be with words. Um, and sometimes it takes a story or a metaphor for something to be personalized, for people to be like, oh, I do that in my life. So again, it takes both. Like sometimes it's about straight talk and not sidestepping, and sometimes it's about like even like when you set up the standard of like pretend a listener doesn't have a high school diploma and make sure that they can understand your answers, right? Like that person might be smarter than me, but I have to pull from my own experiences with people without high school diplomas and then try to use that accordingly to be respectful of that particular concept. Then you have your own like general personality. I'm from Texas, so I'm basically Dr. Phil with boobs. So I'm all about metaphors and stories and that kind of stuff because I think that it takes these really complicated or it, they're really simple. I actually say this, that all this stuff is really simple. It's just not easy. If it was easy, more people would do it. But we, it's so much more common to make these into really complicated, difficult, you have to have a PhD to really have this conversation because then it makes the conversation inaccessible. So that nobody can, not just anybody can have these conversations, not just anybody can make change. And that, I think, is white supremacy. For sure. So if I can tell a story, or I have a, a game that involves a boat, and it gets people to put down the defense mechanisms just long enough to realize that they are actually part of a problem, mm -hmm. then it works. I get that. And I actually wanted to point out the, the metaphor uh, where you were talking about the slave plantation. I think that is exemplary because that makes it very clear about dynamics, and I found that people tend to understand uh, the articulation of white supremacy. When uh, we get back to the plantation, everything becomes very black and white, and 
people get it immediately. Right. Um, and if I use that same example in a primarily white audience, completely ineffectual. Because what happens is the classic defense mechanism, I never owned slaves, so you're not talking to me. Right. And again, my program and, and what I do, I don't talk to white people about racism, white supremacy. I, I really focus on non-white people. I've concluded white people are much more informed about this than I am, so I don't I don't really focus on uh, teaching or educating white people about this. Well, um, and it takes both of us. For sure. Uh, last one before I get to the phone lines. Uh, you talked about ways in which uh, non-whites, uh, you overcompensate non-whites uh, in your anti-racist work. Can you talk about uh, what you mean when you say that and exactly uh, which non-white people get overcompensated and you know what that means? That's actually one that um, that actually brought up a lot of conversation. So when I when I put the call out for like, does anybody want to add to this list as well? Because as a white facilitator, I'm sure I'm missing something that I do. Um, that one got was sent to me, and the context in which it was sent to me. So I'll I'll give you background. Was non-deserving, non-white getting like the award as well? So like. Typically speaking, a white person always gets the Student of the Year award. I'm using this as an example. Look, I'm telling a story. So Student of the Year, you always give the award out, and every year it's always a white student. So <laughs> what, what, I, what the context was, I think meant as, as she delivered it was that instead of giving it to the best student, who may or may not be a white student, um, giving it to a white student and a non-white student, or finding the one non-white student that people would be comfortable giving it to who may not actually be worthy of the award, but because then it makes white people feel good that they did something diverse. You know, or like another example I can think of is, is an organization I work with that um, we have an act, uh, like a retreat. And uh, not a lot of non-whites attend the retreat because one, it's expensive, it's really long, and it's a long time to take off work. That's the feedback we've gotten from non-whites who have attempted to go to the retreat. Mm -hmm. So one year, there's one really good picture that turned out of one of the non-white people who attended the retreat. Mm -hmm. That picture is on everything. Mm -hmm. So, and I notice this when I go to different schools too, is that like the three non-white people that the college photographer it has access to or that the administration or whatever are comfortable hearing from. So and in non-white culture, these might be like the tokenized ones, the Uncle Toms, the sellouts, whatever. And there's a lot of pressure involved if you happen to be one of those people. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of pressure if you would like to be one of those people but you weren't selected. But those people will be in every pamphlet. And so when as an outsider for a university, Sometimes universities will mail me all their promo materials, and at first glance, it might look racially diverse, but if you look at it for 30 seconds, it's the same black woman and Asian man wearing the same clothes. Sometimes they do change their shirts, but look, look, look at us, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so to be able to do that to a non-deserving, non-white person so that it looks better is one, supporting white supremacy, it's tokenizing, and it's really marginalizing to the superior students that do deserve 
some kind of accolades who we're just not comfortable hearing that from them. Hmm. Very interesting. I'm uh, going to hit the uh, phone line so uh, I can snatch in uh, anyone who's called in number. Uh, I'll repeat it one more time, 347-215-6071. I'm actually uh, having a tough one today, so I'm going to put everyone who calls in, I'm going to put them on the line, and then we're going to be orderly. Just go down, and you can ask your question or make your comment or what have you. Um, I'm going to request, if you call in, please make every effort to not have a lot of background noise. If, you, uh, if you're listening on your computer, if you could turn the computer volume down, that would be super helpful. Um, yeah, just minimizing the background noise, that would be great. And uh, in terms of uh, not having the computer volume up, that's very helpful, um, and not having uh, feedback, which is uh, kind of wacky to hear that uh, on the phone. So give me one sec. And, uh, sure. And while, while you're doing that with the call-in lines, just because in my experience this is usually when technical difficulties occur, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I put my email at the very top of the chat room oh, so okay. that if, if anyone gets disconnected or something, mm-hmm. my email is contact me at Jessica Pettit, there's four T's in my last name, .com. You can Facebook me, you can call me, you can do whatever you would like to do because I want to make sure that I answer people's questions just in case tech problems happen. Outstanding. Can you repeat that again and tell them your website and I will uh, get the phone line? Sure. So, again, just in case there's any technological problems, my name is Jessica Pettit, P-E-T-T-I-T-T. My website is jessicapettit.com. Or you can email me at contactme at jessicapettit.com. Um, you can Facebook me. It's Pettit, P-E-T-T-I-T-T-Jess. And my cell phone is 917-543-0966. I'm giving this out now just because um, after listening to several of the interviews, um, it seems that there's a lot of technological problems that happen with the phone lines. And so I want to make sure that if people do have questions, that you can ask them. So that's about it, I think. Groovy. Um, 301, you are on the air. Hi, Gus. This is Jamal. How you doing? I'm well, sir. How are you? Fine. How you doing? Uh, right quick, a quick question I have for uh, Jessica. I wanted to ask her, um, you said you you, you uh, disagree with uh, Neely Fullard and Dr. Uh, Wilson. And I wonder what what... what what did you disagree with both of those, both of them two people? Okay, um, good question. So I didn't disagree with everything that they said, and what? I probably haven't seen or heard everything, so I just wanted to be clear. Um, one of the things that in the interview that I listened to between Gus and Nellie Fuller, um, especially growing up in the South um, with more access to stories about like colored signs and colored water fountains and um, I realized again consciously very recently that I was educated in Texas, Arkansas, and South Carolina and I didn't have access to a lot of educational outlets that didn't involve segregation. Um, Even when I taught high school, I taught at Little Rock Central um, which in 1995, 96 was still very segregated. Um, and so listening to his stories, talking about 
the um, intentional segregation of um, blacks and whites, um, I what, what what came up for me, I think, is that post-civil rights era, and I'm using air quotes that you can't hear, um, I think white people call the 60s the civil rights era so that we can think we're done with that. Um, what I think that the civil rights era did wasn't necessarily making great strides towards equity, but it taught a lot of white people, not all white people, but it taught a lot of white people what not to do publicly, but that doesn't change what we do privately. And so um, I, I obviously don't disagree with Nellie's stories, um, but what came up for me was is that the white people that I'm working with now don't know that reality and think that they can't be racist because they don't segregate in that extreme way. Right. So I'm dismantling a lot of that. Okay. Um, so that's, in my notes, that's the main thing that came up because I was wondering if I was actually going to ask this question. So gold star to you. Um, and then, um, is it Dr. Wesleyan? Yeah, Dr. Wesley. Okay, I, I couldn't read. Hello, Gus? Hello? Hi. I, Hello? I, I can't read my own handwriting, so I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. But um, one of the pieces that I saw with her was specifically related to what I would call lesbian, gay, or bisexual relationships. Yeah. And um, I, I disagree that that is similar to bestiality or having sex with children or sex that's not based on consent. Um, I disagree with that. No. So th those were the two big things that came up. <sighs> uh, I have uh, one other. I'm, uh, if you can hang with me for a second, uh, Mr. Hill, I want, uh, we have one other caller on the line. I want to get them to get their question in, and then we can okay. just go back and forth or what have you. Uh, other caller, are you there? Hello? You're on the air if you have a question or comment. Okay. Yes, I have a, a comment as well as questions. It's so funny, Jessica, that you and I do the same type of work. I'm black, but I'm considered a racist. I reside in Miami, Florida, and I always push the agenda of diversity training, but more so for black people because I notice that black people are in a state right now of acceptance. If white folks don't say it's okay, then they should not do it. So I've worked in higher education as well, and what I notice is just like because of the way the system is set up by white people, it's very hard for a conscious black person realistically to uh, assimilate or work in those type of environments. For example, the school where I used to work at was more of an um, art school, but they used to put the information out there as if, because of the school, it was just like 100000 I think, for a bachelor's degree, black folks cannot attend that school. And this is just like, I, I left that school last year. So it's, it's an ongoing situation, but they don't see nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And being in Florida, it's the majority of Hispanics that takes over the personality of, you know, the southern ways of white folks. So even though they're Spanish, they're Hispanic, they still carry that mindset of how white people were or is still now uh, regarding black people. So you'll go, I'll go into a situation and I have my bachelor's, my master's heading towards a Ph.D., and I'm still getting less than 60. And when I walk in the situation... Everybody already know how much I'm getting paid, but I know nothing about nobody else in there. Right. That's and, how the uh, system is designed. 
Correct. So what I did myself is disassociate myself with white folks in general and anyone of of that mentality, of that mindset, because it's very detrimental for um, a young black person in America, to be quite honest, with all the right credentials to have to face that, number one. Number two is um, how are we ever going to dismantle what black people, what white people have set up as far as the word nigger. The word nigger has become a household name. I'm trying to go over to Japan, and the first thing that they were heading towards was just like, oh, do I speak slang? Or that was part of the application I had to fill out because I'm heading over to Japan. So even the Japanese, who really don't know about African-American culture, knows a little bit of the negative aspect of African-Americans or black people in general. So I don't, I don't even know kind of where to respond other than that sucks and please stay in it. That's all I can really say. Um, and what right do I have to tell that, you know? Um, I think that what came up for me in, in your stories is, first of all, um, there was a recent linguistic study done that in the United States... Um, I'm to cut you off, but it's not actually stories. It's just my experience. It's an experience that a lot of, you know, other black folks have to go through. It's not really like a story. I'm just, because stories, you can make them up. They're not factual. My is factual and is based on experience. Right. And I, I appreciate that clarification. So I, I meant your personal sharing, putting, putting your stories, your life experiences out there for all of us to digest and really learn from is risky. So um, thank you for that. In um, this recent study that was done um, for the last like 20 years the word cunt was the meanest thing that you could call anybody in the United States and this year was the first year that cunt was replaced with racist um, to be called a racist now is the meanest thing that you could call anybody and so I think that that's an important truth to be mindful of especially when on this show we talk about language a lot in that when we when we talk about using words as weapons, especially when they're being thrown by people, regardless of a racial identity, of how much history they know is related to a particular word, um, I one of the premises of this show is that white people know more about white supremacy than non-whites. Is that correct, Gus? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, that is my conclusion. Yes. Okay. So I the, the few. Um, Students of color, non-white students, however you want to word that, um, that I do talk to, um, a lot of them have not had access to a lot of these learnings to even know that what I will use as the N-word, um, that the N-word has a history, that it has a meaning. Um, a, a lot of students are, whether they're white or non-white, are dumbfounded that the last case um, to go before a state Supreme Court in regards to slavery, meaning a person who owns somebody else and getting arrested for it and it going to trial because they can't own another person, was 1978, um, where for some of us, like, whoa, that's really, really recent, current students were, were born 18 years ago. So mm -hmm. 78 is you know, it might as well be the 1400s. Um, so I, I think that it's just important to name kind of that reality piece. Um, 
the other thing that came out of your experiences that you shared is is the Willie Lynch story. Um, are you familiar with that story? Definitely. How to make a story. Okay, and I use story there on purpose because there's a lot of controversy about whether or not that it was real or not real. Um, and I gathered all that controversy on my website if anyone is interested. But the, the kernel of it, to be concise, is that if, if we can just keep pitting the oppressed against each other, then the oppressor still wins. It keeps the system in place. And what I, what I think is important about that is that as two people working in higher education, as two people doing diversity trainings, as um, I, I don't think you identified yourself, but I'm assuming you're a woman, um, as two women, there's a, a, as a non-white person and as a white person, there's a lot of identities that we could easily pit ourselves against one another and not be supportive of one another. Um, and then that would keep the system in place. So in your work environments, if you can add in everybody knows what you're making, but you don't know what anybody else is making, that's more fuel to the fire to keep the system in place. Um, the fact that universities hire um, usually a woman of color to come in and do all the diversity trainings and then yell at you for being a racist and sexist and you have some kind of agenda, you're actually trying to do your job and you were hired for failure. Correct. Because because white people want to be like, look, see, we hired one, now fix it, and then everything that you do to attempt to fix it goes against my system, so I'll just fire you. It is so funny not to cut you off that you mentioned that because the day that I, I just get up and I was like, I had enough of this, the lady turned around and said, well, we hired you for this. You knew what you were getting into. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> is this a mind game or what? It is a mind game. I mean, that's how white supremacy works. Yeah. If I can if I can burn you out, and then those few whack job white people who are doing similar dismantling white supremacy work, if we can get burnt out, the system wins. I mean, white supremacy doesn't give a rat's ass about a particular individual. That's right. That's correct. So what it's going to take is you and I and everyone else to really listen to one another and really share our experiences and our stories with one another and respect the risk that's involved there and maintain those relationships. And it's through that support that I think we'll actually stay in the journey. You know, that I mean to actually I think I think it was Nellie Fuller in one of the interviews that said not mistreating anyone is what we should all be fighting for. That is correct. We judge people. I like to judge white people who say stupid things. Oh, I love judging them. And I distance myself from them. But that's my group. Those are my people. And I need to pull them in. And I need to keep them close to me and teach and learn and listen. And if we can do that together, then I think we can actually start making some change. And realistically, I don't think I'm actually going to see any change in my lifetime. Right, that was another thing I was saying is like black people in general, there's no safe haven because I was just thinking about myself when all this situation was going on in my life. I'm like, you know, I'm going to go head over to Africa, specifically South Africa. Yeah. But it's just the same thing. It's the same thing again. You know, so it's just like they have this thing under lockdown and everybody else are trying to make a difference. It was just like 
I, from my experience, I'm looked, I'm looked down now as a racist. Like, how dare you even trying to bring this into light? Like, there's nothing wrong. Everything is perfect. And the, the saddest thing was, it was in the middle of higher education. And I'm like, okay, you're supposed to be about change, instructing the next, you know, generation. What are you doing? No, the the American the Association of American Universities was founded on the idea that we could create a changed university model, and it was based and founded for elite white men. Oh, I know, I know. That yeah. left out that leaves out women. It leaves out anyone who identifies as non-white or can be identified as non-white. And we are in 2009, and it is not that different. No, not at all. I mean, affirmative action is the tiniest step in the correct direction, and it's still not enough. I mean, it's something. Don't take it away, but it's it's not enough. And it, it it's going to take all of us. Like, that's what I was saying earlier. Like, whether I agree or disagree with the code or some of these other speakers or some of the other people who have been interviewed or their style or whether we're suspicious of them or not suspicious of them, at the root of it, I think that I'm getting all woo-woo. I live in California. But at the root of it, I think that there has to be love. I mean, if ultimately we are talking about dismantling white supremacy and replacing it with justice, that isn't a system. That isn't equality. It's really equity. And it's love and respect for one another. And until we can do that every day with every person, all we can do is do it with the people we can and, and maybe add a new person every day. Hello? That's it. It's, it's very simple. It's just not easy. Hello? Mr. Hill, did you have yes. a question or a comment? Yes, the question I have is uh, if it's just love, there's a lot of black people through history who tried love and died. Through the act of trying non, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King tried the whole premise of love one another. It didn't work. So my only suggestion would be justice first and then love. Because you know the song, what's love got to do with justice? So, I mean. Yeah. I, so, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the bus model. So, like, I, like to me that seems, are you familiar with the bus model? That the idea is is that the bus will come around and it'll pick up this certain type of people first, then they'll get equity and then we'll come back around for everybody else. No, no. Like it, it's all or nothing in my opinion. I mean, no, Martin Luther King didn't solve the problem. And my belief, and I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I believe he was assassinated because if you take race work and start pulling in class work, then the numbers get so big that it's actually scary. So he had to be killed. Otherwise, he was going to be too effective. Right, but even... Go. Oh, hello? Go ahead. Hello? Yeah. Oh, I'm still here. I was just going to say that Gandhi didn't solve all of the problems he was working on. Mother Teresa didn't solve all the problems that she was working on. Neither will I. Well, I'm not... And I have to stay in it. Well, and not... I have to stay in it out of love. Right, but I'm not talking about just a... You're not going to accomplish everything. I'm not talking about uh, not accomplishing everything. But when you say love, that word love is a very serious thing. And what I mean by that is this. There are a lot of people, like back to you say you disagree with some of the things well, Dr. Wilson said. And one of the things she talked about was 
the word love. If we talked about love in the sense of saying it's going to take love, black people have tried it, and white supremacy has wiped it out clearly because of Martin Luther King. He said, let's love one another. Let's, little black boys, little black girls. To me, love is not the answer. To, that. to me, the key is justice. And if you stick to the premise of justice, in my opinion, that everything will uh, just getting the just doing justice. I wouldn't need to be concerned about love. Just on the premise of justice, at at, at its bare bones, just justice. Because once I, you, uh, hello, I, I I agree, and I don't know what the countdown thing is, but I think that love is the ink that writes the word justice. To me, I mean, they're inseparable from one another. I mean, I, I think that that's really critical. I think that if you're also talking about doing work, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, if we're doing work from a, a dominant identity, when I, as a white person, say we need to dismantle white supremacy out of love and justice, because that is a dominant identity that I benefit from, I think that the impact of that is significantly different than if if... I choose one of my other dominant identities. I'm a U.S. citizen. I speak English as a native language. I am afforded Christian privilege. I'm young. I'm able-bodied. If from all of those dominant identities, I say we need to stop injustice, I'm able to do that, and it's fueled by my love. Right, and I understand that, but... Back to what, uh, back to the whole premise of it is that the whole thing of love is vulnerability, right? Sure, right. We all have a lot to gain and lose right. by dismantling the system. But at the same time, it's been deadly for black people. Yes, it's. I mean, it's it's a deadly system. So for us, love is probably won't be the most uh, logical thing to to uh, to come at it. It'd be more for us, I think, and this is my opinion, is justice. Because, again, we were going back and listening to the whole program is that you, all white people can't be trusted in, under the system of white supremacy, correct? We all establish. Sure. So yes. if, if love is to be, if love is to, 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 for justice, then you would have to be vulnerable for love. And that every time we have loved some, loved, we have gotten burned for that. But in a white supremacist society, non-whites are already vulnerable. Well, so if I were asking a non-white person to come at this from a more vulnerable place, I think that's practicing white supremacy. Right. I think that what my, my, my premise of dominant identity versus subordinated identity is that as, if a non-white person can find another form of a dominant identity, which as a non-white person, your racial identity is not a dominant form of identity. Maybe it's your gender, maybe it's your religion, maybe it's your ability or your age or your economic class. From those dominant places, you can do work, too. Well, I understand. I, uh, hello? I'm oh, here. I, can, I understand that, but at the same time, even though I may be vulnerable, I still don't want to make myself as vulnerable. No, so, of course not. So I'm just saying for as, as, non, as a non-white person, I can't see myself putting love out there because every time a non-white person has put themselves out there, they have gotten killed. Yes, so my, my point is, though, is that where you could... So I'm assuming, like, for example, I don't know, are you a U.S. citizen? Oh, uh, yes. You speak English? Yes. You, um, I don't know what your class background is, but 
from any of those identities that may be of a place of dominance, but you can those, show love there. Right, but none of those places of dominance under the white supremacy is dominant because all, all that is... Well, that's, that's part of the code that I disagree with. Right, so. but see, but that's my point. All those things are, are, are classified by white supremacy. At all those 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 things you listed are dominated by white supremacy. You can name all those things, which you can bring to the table because you're in white supremacy and your color is seen as a passport. So you can use that to your benefit to stop white supremacy. But at the same yes. But at the same time, as a person of a who's non-white. That, that you're making a valid point. Huh? Uh, you're making a valid point because that's what I'm going through, and that's what I. Jessica, is they look at me as a racist, but they want to look at her as a the same way. Right. See, so you. Right. But if I were to do work around gender equality or gender equity, the mm-hmm. the women in this conversation would look like angry women. But, but if men took on gender equity then it, they couldn't be labeled that way because it's not a dominant identity that they have. But see, that's I the, mean, because it's coming from a place of male privilege versus a woman-identified person. Right, but see, like he was saying before, the conversation is changing because you're bringing in gender. If you're a non-white, uh, if you're a non-white person, any gender, male or female, non-white person, then you're going to be subjugated to any type of any type of white supremacy that's under the system of white supremacy. What that means is that, regardless of what gender me and this young lady is, we're going to be uh, going to be um, objected to non—I mean, subjected to white white supremacy under white supremacy. So therefore, regardless of what we are, what gender or what age, we're still going to be uh, objected for the over uh, white supremacy, regardless of what gender, age. Religion. Yes. No, I, I completely support that. And my, my my piece is, and so so fundamentally this is something that I, I disagree with when, in the few things that I was able to see about the code. So we, we can respectfully agree to disagree with each other. My premise in the work that I do, so I can only speak for myself, right. is that the cost and risk is significantly lower when you, it's still there, but it is significantly lower when doing work to dismantle systems of oppression all of them, from dominant identities. So as a white person, it is absolutely my my responsibility to work to dismantle white supremacy because as a white person, I am benefiting and have inherited privilege from this system. And so I should be working to dismantle that. But even... Seven two zero. Hold on one second. Seven two zero. You're uh, you're on the uh, line as well. If you had a question or comment, uh, you can go ahead and make your question or comment. Yes, I do have some questions. Um, to uh, well, first of all, to you, uh, Gus. Um, greetings. Um, also, also, uh, the program has gone off, and uh, I'm trying to figure out how to get it back on the computer. Uh, we uh, reached the two-hour point. At that mark, the live stream stops. So, if you're listening on the computer. Uh, you won't be able to hear it live anymore, but if you tune in, if you check out the archives, you'll be able to hear the duration of the program. As long as you're on the phone, you'll be able to hear uh, being the broadcast. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And, and just uh, to be transparent, um, I'm having dinner guests over at 6.30, and oh. so I, I will have to go at some point because I have to 
make a salad. Okay. I've already made the potatoes while we were on. <clears throat> okay. Okay, well, then I'll I did forget to put the lasagna in, though. Thank you for reminding me. Okay. Okay, then I'll try and be quick. Uh, to Miss uh, Pettit? Yes. Is that your name? Um, the first question I have is, are you happy? Am I happy in the content way or just happy-go-lucky in a general way? Both. Um, I am an optimistic person, so that definition of happiness, sure. Am I content? Absolutely not. Okay, the second question is, you sounded uh, pretty eager and happy to meet Gus T. Renegade. You said that uh, you sounded excited at the prospect of meeting him at the uh, conference, the White Privilege Conference, I believe. Yes. If, if he's to come, is that correct? Sure. I'll be in Seattle in September. Maybe we can meet then. Are you also happy uh, having this conversation? Um, I'm actually doing much better than I thought. I've been really um, anxious about the conversation, which has been a lot of conversations I've had with myself about what that means and, like, what of my whiteness is showing up even preparing for this conversation. Um, but, no, I think it's been actually really enjoyable. Okay, okay. And I've wow. learned a lot. I mean, to me, enjoyable means I've learned a lot, just to clarify. Mm. That doesn't clear, clarify things for me, but okay. I'll go well, with it. Um, ask so can I take that to mean that uh, you are happy having this conversation? Yes. Okay. Mm. Um, I have so many other questions, but uh, as you said, you do need to make a salad. Oh, no, no. I mean... Go ahead. Like, I, I will let you know when I have to go. They're, they're coming over at 6.30. If you have a series of questions you can ask, you can email me, etc. So I, am I happy to be talking about dismantling white supremacy? Absolutely. If I could do it 24-7, I would. The next question I have is, in your wildest imagination, if the system were to be dismantled, and hence, I'm assuming white people no longer have privilege as a result of being white. Yes. Can you imagine what you would be like if that were to happen? Um, I imagine that I would probably be in a state of free fall. Um, if, I don't know what that means. So I'm, to me, it's a visual image of falling in a undefined, unending space. Um, the reason why I say that is because I don't necessarily know. I, I actually, I don't even think that it's possible for me to know currently how many ways I benefit from being white. And so if the system of white supremacy was completely dismantled and all of a sudden it didn't exist, um, I, I would imagine that the immediate impact of loss, of um, my inability to navigate multitudes of systems I've never even noticed, um, would be um, mind-blowing. 
and I would I would have to constantly remind myself that this is actually better. If it's mind-blowing, if indeed it is mind-blowing, what kind of physical behavior would that make you capable of? If it's mind-blowing. I don't know. I mean, I, I and I'm not trying to dodge your question. I just, I really don't know. I don't know. Um, I would imagine that I would feel a horrible sense of loss and um, unguidedness. Um, right, like I don't know what the opposite word of trapped would be because there wouldn't be any walls for me to hold on to because the whole system that I know would be gone. But I don't know how that would physically manifest itself. My default is usually Reese's peanut butter cups and cheese, but um, if the system is dismantled, I may not even have a means to buy food that is my comfort mechanism. So I don't know. I'm not trying to make light of your question. It's a, it's a very significant and very powerful question, and I really don't know the answer to it. Hmm. Hmm. But at this point, you are, as you said, a happy person. Yes. I I have experienced enough things in my life to realize that I have no idea how long I'm here, and the only thing I have control over is my own attitude. Um, so it's my job to keep going, stay in the struggle, be as optimistic and happy as I can be. I mean, the, like, I'm not exactly sure why you brought up me being happy to meet Gus, but um, I like building relationships with people. And in listening to several interviews with Gus, there's some things we disagree with. There's some things that we agree with. I would imagine you may be similar. And I need people in my life like that. If I was only surrounded by people I agreed with, one, that would be really boring, and two, I wouldn't learn anything. So building relationships with people that are new and have new ideas and can agree with me and disagree with me and challenge me and support me um, are the kind of relationships that I want in my life. I mean, that's why I took advantage of the opportunity to even be on the radio show. So. Are you and are you familiar with uh, Michael Bradley's book? I don't know what's it called. Ice Man Inheritance. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's a very good book. What's it called? The Ice Man Inheritance. Uh, he was on the program as well, uh, yeah. May sixth, uh, May ninth. How did I miss that? Ice Man Inheritance. I will write it down. I inheritance. What were you gonna? What point were you gonna make? I'm not familiar with it. Well, there's one point in the book that uh, rings out loudly, at least that uh, I got from it. And he says that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, that it seems to be the nature of white people to be the most aggressive people on the planet. and that they are rooted in a culture of sex and aggression. What do you think of that? My initial thoughts are I would add in colonialization, terrorism, genocide, and militarism, um, all of which are aggressive and violence-based. Um, 
So, I mean, not knowing the context, uh, based on what you just said, I couldn't agree more. Well, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's only limited to white people. I think that um, white no, people are responsible for the vast majority of uh, the quote-unquote development and colonialization that has destroyed the planet. So, I, I, yeah, I guess I would kind of, I, yeah. Out of context, that statement by itself, yes, I would support that. Yeah, he didn't say limited. He didn't say that the aggression was limited to white people. He said that they are the most aggressive people. I, and um, I, I don't know enough about, like, I know that um, there were some other conversations, too, about, like, genetics and things, and I don't know enough about genetics to talk about those pieces. But I would definitely say that white culture is based on aggression and sexuality. I, I think that even sex has been commodified into a form of aggression. So, But let's be clear. You said is based on, he's saying, the most. Right. And I'm saying I can't, I can't know because I don't know enough about if, if there's a most, then that means there's a second most, a third most, a fourth most, and I don't know, and I don't know how those mosts are being determined. But the but principle, did, yes, I would agree. But you did bring up colonialism. And you said, and I think you used the words uh, vast, uh, the most vast in some way, just earlier, that white people have. Yes. Yeah, colonialism, material, uh, militarism, terrorism, genocide, all of those, I completely agree. Um, It's a significant part of white culture. A significant part. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, how is your time? I'm sorry? How is your time looking? Oh, I thought you asked how is my tongue. And I'm like, um, fine. <laughs> it is 6.15. The lasagna is in the oven. My uh, husband text messaged me that he is bringing a salad. So until he arrives, I am good. Okay, okay. I uh, also had a uh, person say to me that... Uh, uh, in their view, that uh, from all his life experiences and all his studies, that uh, he had started forming an opinion that the reason white people were put here was to show non-white people how not to be. What do you think of that? Um, I've never heard that before, and what comes to mind is a philosophy that I'm using the word philosophy in a, a loose manner, but um, I have often said that I wasn't gifted with mentors. I was gifted with people who I don't want to grow up to be like. Um, people usually kind of laugh around that, but I mean it really seriously, and that I take it as, for me, I take it as a privilege, I guess, that I've been able to have access to people that I so horrifically disrespect and um, really have struggled to find humanity in their own behaviors um, and have used that to really shape who I am and show up as a person. Um, That piece came up for me in a sense. Um, I think that not knowing, obviously, the, the person that you're talking about, I think it's really sad to me that um, 
a kind of dogma, I guess, would go out to non-whites that that that's a truth to learn how not to be. That makes me really sad. That makes you sad. Mm-hmm. Hello. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, uh, may I ask a question? Is 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 this possible? Yeah. Um, on a more um, uh, current note, I wanted to ask you a question about the um, about the hearings of the uh, the woman who was going to be who's trying to get on the uh, Supreme Court, and I wanted to ask you about the actual the actual well not well the the senators who said that she was racist. I wanted to ask you, what did you think about some of the uh, some of the white men who say that she was just racist, and we need to watch out for some of her comments and, and all that stuff she said about her being a Latina woman and her experience. I think that's the system of white supremacy being threatened by someone who's extremely qualified and extremely competent. Um, I think everyone's life experience shapes who they are, how they buy cantaloupes in the grocery store. Um, I think that being a judge on the Supreme Court, the bottom line is what the law says and that that should dictate what happens. But even the laws have subjective leanings, which is why there's more than one judge that makes a final decision. And I think the idea that her being a woman or her being Latina or coming from a poor background is somehow going to be a negative attribute to what she brings to the bench. Um, I think any of the white people on the bench should be held accountable for being white and that they bring their whiteness to the bench. Um, I think that that's imperative and because of white supremacy would never even be thought of or brought up. And the reason why all judges are supposed to be white, probably and men, and then anyone who's different than that is some exception or a mistake. I think that's how white supremacy works. Uh, and another, well, the reason why I brought that up to piggyback on the uh, gentleman's question about the, uh, hello, hello, sir. Yeah. You was bringing up the uh, the question of the most uh, aggressive, the most aggressive, and I find this is to be very, very important. Back to the statement you made, where I just felt that these these white men were very. Uh, most aggressive in a sexual way, and I felt that because of some of the questions they asked her, and how they, she, how they, how dare her say that you're a woman, uh, uh, basically, and that you are uh, basically you're a woman, and that and on top of that, you're a woman of color. So I just felt that some of the line of questionings and you know some of the backlash for what she said. Was almost saying at the same time, um, uh, not only just uh, racist, but at the time it sounded almost sexual in the sense of. Very interesting. I have another question quickly for Miss Pettit. Um, and this will probably have to be the last one, and then I was going to say yes. that you would touch at the end. Go ahead. Yes, yes. Um, with your analogy or your metaphor of. Uh, sitting on the porch of the plantation and still um, mistreating the slaves and yet talking of dismantling white supremacy. It uh, is very, in my core, in my core, it's very alarming and very disturbing 
to hear that being said, and it becomes even more disturbing uh, to hear this conversation going as it's going with you saying those things and being fully aware of saying those things. It's quite alarming, um, even more than Tim Wise, at least from reading the uh, few uh, emails that he had sent to Gus, it indicates to me as what Mr. Fuller said, uh, non-white people would be better off having a white person blow their brains out as opposed to this kind of thing that is happening that's quite alarming in this conversation to me and concerning. I'm not even quite sure how to put a finger on it, what is uh, coming through to me, but to hear you laugh and giggle. And it, there was a, a story, uh, a play by uh, Leroy Jones or Mary Baraka, uh, The Dutchman and the Slave. And uh, are you familiar with that? Um, I've heard it referred to a number of times on this program. Yes, and uh, I'm not recalling the young woman's name in the play, but this conversation borders on that. And uh, it's quite alarming to me. And then, like I say, for you to know that you're in that position and with what you said about free fall, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, quite alarming. Can it, do you want me to respond? You can, yes. Well, one, yes, it is entirely alarming. Um, it is a truth. Well, here, wait, before you go on, if you respond, I would more like you to respond in terms of how you uh, deal with whatever feelings you have in terms of, for lack of a better word, the inconsistencies and contradictions and and the conversation. Yeah. So, yes. So, um, one, it is, I share with you that it is disturbing. Um, I think for a very long period of time when these ugly contradictions, and by ugly I mean like it's really disturbing, it's really, I would use the word gross, um, my immediate reaction was let's not think I would about use that. The, for me it's almost borders on insanity. Okay, I mean, there's a lot of words that can be used. It's wrong. I mean, it's gross, it's sticky, it's nasty, it's got thorns on it, it's not pretty. And so I would say that my my typical reaction had been, and I'm using past tense on purpose, but I'm sure it still happens now, is um, when something really ugly shows up, I create a distraction so that I don't have to pay attention to it. Um. Even the work that I've done to prepare oh, that, for this. That's very, that's very interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's very interesting. That sounds a bit like what Dr. Welsing, and it is Welsing, uh, had okay, said in terms, of, uh, in terms of, uh, for lack of a better word, compensating uh, so that, uh, I guess if I'm understanding you correctly, so that you can feel better. The distraction um, is so that you can feel better. I don't think that, I mean, so this is my truth, okay? So I don't think it's so that I can feel better. It's so that I don't have to feel that. So I might pick a distraction. Wait, wait, let's 
What is the I'm, that? So you, what is the that? I'm, so you don't I'm, have to feel the ugliness? I'm trying to answer your question. So if I come up, like even on this show, like I have never said out loud the sitting on your porch and having a slave come in from the field and tell me that they really like me, like having that positive feedback, I've never said that before. And it is my truth. And it's not something that I'm certainly proud of. And I didn't say it on this radio show to get any kind of kudo points or accolades from anybody else. That was my truth, and I need to sit in it. And so the language that I use is, first of all, when these things started to happen and I started to know, ooh, that's ugly. And the feelings that came up with that were like real and naked and witnessed and vulnerable and raw. What I believe my code of operation used to be, and again, I'm using past tense even though probably I still do this, is I would, cre I would create a distraction even if it was still a negative feeling, but so that I didn't have to focus on the really raw naked truth. And part of doing this work is staying and sitting in the muck that I create because that's really the only way I'm ever going to get to know it and internalize it. And the truth of the matter is, is that me doing this is a hobby, whereas non-white people do this as an act of survival. And that ultimately that's how white supremacy works and that's how I benefit from white supremacy, is that I can force myself to sit in these thorny, difficult, naked, vulnerable, raw, witnessed, like, and I say witnessed as a recovering alcoholic, like one of the things that's the hardest thing is about a recovering alcoholic for me is that I don't know what people witnessed me doing. And I find a lot of parallels there in this, and that me thinking and feeling and acting and enacting and tracing those patterns, ultimately, at the root of it, is still a hobby of mine. Uh, hello? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When we was going back, I don't want to, I just want to piggyback what he said. When we was having the, uh, the discussion about, you know, love and justice. Yes. And I was saying that justice is the most logical thing to stick with because when you say that you, you have to make yourself sit there, you don't have to sit there if you don't want to. So therefore, no, and, and I live in a white supremacist society that would encourage me not to, but go, to go spend $15 and go to a movie. Right, but I'm saying even though that may be true, you as an individual, as a white person, you don't have to sit there. You don't have to deal with it. You have a choice. Right. And what I'm saying is that the best thing for, for non-white people is to approach it with justice and not love, because every time we approach it with love, we tend to die. Nothing. Okay, so, and, and I hear you, and the piece there, again, for you, is still around the dominant identity piece. Really? So I think that the risk is too high for people from a subordinated identity to be dismantling and approaching things from love, because I think that the risk is, is that you get killed. Right. Metaphorically or re realistically. Right. So you have, as... If you're, you have to come at things from dismantling the systems from your dominant identity. Right. So me as a white person, you as a man, etc. Right. You come any way you desire to come to to get to where you think it will be dismantling white supremacy at its best. 
And to piggyback, what he was saying is that, uh, hello? Yes, yes, maybe. How about dovetail, brother? Dovetail, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, he was making, I mean, I, I didn't even recognize it until he said something. Didn't even cross my mind. And let me, let me, and I know she has to go, but I just want to be clear before she right. does go. You did say, Ms. Pettit, that the distraction is so that you don't have to focus on the truth. I mean, that is a form of distraction. I, I create distractions for myself all the time, but yes. But if you don't focus on the truth, then you truthfully don't deal with the problem. Yes, that is completely correct. And because I'm benefiting from the system of white supremacy, I have nothing to lose unless I focus on the truth. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, and I know that there's all these words, and, like, I'm really not trying to be, like, semantics. I'm reading a book right now called Fierce Conversations, hmm. and um, I would recommend it. I, I find a lot of encouragement in it in why I need distractions from the truth and then finding the roots of those truths. I'm really I'm getting a lot out of the book. It's called Fierce can Conversation. You me, can you give me the gist of what that's about? Fierce Conversations. Um, the, the question that it constantly repeats, so if I'm in a situation where I have caught myself forming yet another distraction, the question that I repeat is, what am I pretending not to know? So that is, that, just for the record, that, that is the doorbell and my dogs because my dinner guests are okay. now here. Thank so, you. Um, so I, w I would like to just on the record to say that the, the radio program, this radio program is, one, critically important. And then I think it's important that you continue having guests that agree and disagree with different pieces because if we can all do that and stay in the struggle, I really believe that we're actually going to make some change. I think it's important to understand and know that victims understand that the very system that is oppressing them in a way that oppressors don't, and that it takes the oppressor to stop and sit in it to really see what it is they are doing and how, when I say they, I am part of they in white supremacy, how complicity works in and what the connection is to responsibility to dismantle that very oppression. So it's the conversation between the oppressor and the victims that need to occur that are highly unlikely to occur because we live in a system of suspicion. Um, and we need to because I, I can't even trust myself. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate your efforts. I will definitely be in touch. Uh, if I could request, I'm going to mute the phone. If you could wait uh, exactly 95 seconds before you hang up the line, I would like to play uh, Mr. Williams' commercial for Counter Racism Radio. I will mute the phone so you can handle your guests and do your thing, but if you could just wait 90 seconds before you hang up, that would be outstanding. Wonderful. And, Gus, if you ever want to do this again, let me know. Um, I know you did not get to ask the, am I, is my partner a person of color question, and no, my partner is white. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Outstanding. Yes, uh, I would for sure, uh, I'm always down to have dialogue with a white person, and it seems like uh, maybe the callers didn't get to ask, 
ask all of their questions as well. So I will definitely be in touch. And if you can give me 90 seconds for my commercial, I will uh, close the show out. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, callers. Thank you. You want us to get on? Thank you. Hello? Hello? Yes. Uh, are, are Are we finished with this, Gus? I guess it's a Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.